This is episode number 47 of the Bearded Marketers podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. Catch new episodes every Monday at thebeardedmarketers.com slash podcast. Talk about the issues, talk about the latest news, and I don't know really what we're doing in the internet marketing world every Strategies week. Strategies. Yeah, exactly. To help you make more money. To help you guys out there make more money. Important note though, why we're different than everyone else, no sponsorships, no gigs, no ads. We don't pitch products unless we personally use them. And we don't actually get any free products from anyone for actually pitching we will anything. Accept them, right, but. exactly. <laughs> no one's offered yet. <laughs> so you can basically if, if we promote somebody on this show, it's because we actually use them and we do believe in their products and or services or whatever it is. Before we get into the topics we're going to be talking about tonight, we always do a rundown of what we're drinking to get into the mood to bring you the issues. So Corey, my man, what are you doing tonight? Tonight, I'm actually taking a page from your book, doing an old-fashioned, since you talked it up so much on the last episode. What about yourself? Uh, I'm going to my old go-to, Dark and Stormy. For those who do not know the recipe, look it up or listen to old episodes, because we've covered it a million times. But it is quite tasty. Absolutely. It's a great drink. Gosling's is the key. As always. All right, so let's kick this episode off. Topics for tonight. If you have a topic that you'd like us to discuss, give us a call, 904-270-9603. Rob mans the phone day and night. Doesn't matter who he's talking with. If the red phone rings, hold on. I got a call on the line. Yep. So give us a call if you have something you'd like us to talk about. But for tonight, we're going to be covering typography. And does that have any influence into conversion? Things you need to consider. PPC learnings from last year. Trends that we saw with partners and things to be aware of. Social signals and SEO. Are those actually intertwined? Is there any relationship there? I don't know. We'll see. And then lastly, email versus social. This is going to be round 12. We expect a knockout. Who's going to be the winner? What should you pay attention to? And we'll have to see. So Professor Rob kicking us off with a creative, a hint of creative on the typography front. What do you got for us? So get your number two pencils out. Get your scantrons ready. I don't know. It's typography. So shouldn't it be like a felt pen or something? Yeah, something like a cartographer's oh, pen. Yes. With some, Quill. With some, Quill yeah, pen. Exactly. Yes, yes. Uh, okay, so what I'm going to do here is just sort of run down some basics of typography. What are some of the elements of it? You know, for those who aren't aware of exactly what we're talking about, maybe they think that that just means fonts or spacing or whatever it is. I'll run you through the basic six elements of typography and then also talk about maybe its influence on conversion. There have been a few studies done that which types of fonts are easy to read and what font sizes, things like that. So we'll run through some of that stuff. So first on the list of six elements that make up typography, number one is the typeface. This is not the same thing as the font to lead with, right? (laughs) To lead with. Although I think in most people's mind, it probably is the same thing. So this actually refers to a group of characters, letters, and numbers. These are things called uh, times, Arial. These are. So what most would consider a font is what is technically called the typeface in typography. Fonts now, this is actually what most people call fonts, are not actually fonts. Going deeper. Right. This is a specific style of a typeface. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Arial is the typeface. Arial bold would be the font, right? So, it's just a specific style on a typeface. Most every font family out there, or font, sorry, has multiple styles on each one. And it's actually not just making things thicker. There are actually maybe stylistic differences between a lot of those different fonts. Number three on the list, line length. And this is basically just the distance occupied by the text 
right and left, obviously, this is just a measurement of how wide or how much space a specific font takes up. Leading, this is the space between the baselines. So for example, this is getting a little technical here, mm -hmm. but I'll make it easy. I'll break it down for you. Okay. So the baselines, this is basically the difference between, okay, so let's say the difference between a uppercase and a lowercase letter. Mm -hmm. Those are the baselines on those characters, the tops and the bottoms. Some are taller, some are shorter, right? Okay. Kerning, this is the space between individual characters. I think everyone's probably pretty familiar with that. Tighter kerning makes things a little bit more difficult to read, but has sure. a little bit of attitude it's attached to it. <laughs> Save um, some space. <laughs> and finally, this is uh, tracking. This is number six on here, and this is also referred to as letter spacing. So this is the uniform spacing between each letter. Okay. Similar in concept to kerning, but not quite the same thing. So that's a little bit of your background on typography. I probably screwed a couple of those technical pieces <laughs> up. And for any, I feel like I'm an expert now. <laughs> yeah, anyone out there who would like to correct me, hit us up on Twitter or give us a call. I will issue a correction, just like the New York Written Times. Apology. So anyway, we got that out of the way. So let's run through a couple of studies that have sort of looked at different font faces and, and how do they actually impact conversion? Does that actually matter? Do people find certain ones easier to read? Whatever it is. So here's a study that was done with 40,000 people. They would be given the same passage of text, and there were a few different font faces in that. So Baskerville, Helvetica, Comic Sans, Georgia, and Trebuchet. And they looked at, okay, which ones were easy to read? They asked questions to these people afterwards and, and, and looked at the results. So the results showed that Comic Sans, I think a perennial favorite <laughs> by most people, inspired the highest amount of disagreement. So basically, if you write something in Comic Sans, I don't believe what you just wrote. I hate it. Right. So for all those people who send out the professional emails with Comic Sans, I don't believe what you're writing. Helvetica was actually not far behind from Comic Sans. Hmm which is pretty similar to those who aren't familiar, pretty similar to Ariel. Finally on that, though, what else they found is Baskerville, though, most trusted huh, of those font faces, although never use that on the web. No. So takeaways from that, not much really to learn in terms of the web, but interesting in that there's definitely differences between your font faces. Right. That's the takeaway for that one. Okay. Test number two. This is more... We actually use some web fonts on this one. So this is more directly relevant to what we're talking about. So there was eight popular online ones here. I'm not going to run through all of them, but suffice to say, okay, so we got things like Georgia, Times New Roman, Tahoma, Verdana, which is mm -hmm. specifically designed for web. And they looked at a few different point sizes in those fonts as well. So 10, 12, and 14, the most common, I think, usually used online. I think a lot of people like to use 13 as well. But this looked at 10, 12, and 14. And here's what they found. Verdana, Arial, and Comic Sans were the three preferred of the eight font faces. Of those, here's the different font sizes. Most people preferred 10. What? And then behind that was 12, and then behind that was 14. So that's pretty easy to, really? to explain. Wow. 10, though, to me, I mean, Is this I don't... for ants? Right. So <laughs> it, with every survey and whatever you look at, obviously, you have to take everything with a grain of salt. And I think that there were probably some confounding factors that we're maybe not aware of by just looking at these summaries. But 10 is impossible to read online. No one makes websites with 10. That's the text you hide in the footer so that no one has to read it, right? <laughs> right. 12 uh, is getting there. I still kind of small. Uh, what the method that people were using to read this text. So perhaps on like a, well, is that well, perhaps on an old busted 800 by 600 mm resolution 10 maybe looks fine if that's how they conducted the survey but now with most people having 1080p or higher resolution monitors when you start looking at 10 point font that is extremely small and i think it might speak more towards as well how much you actually care about the text that you're trying to read so 
if you're just conducting a study and it's like, can you see this and rate it one to 10, that's fine. But when it comes to when you are shopping for something or trying to learn about a process or trying to really pay attention to this content that you are absorbing, does the value that you place on the size of the font change? Because you're really trying to paint. You're not like trying to skim. Like mm-hmm. many times yeah. we absorb information online. It's I'm really reading yeah. this content and it's really straining to absorb all this because I'm reading this 10 point font with a magnifying glass up to my monitor. Well, here's another thing to consider too. And you know, this is just more specifically about the study. I think these results are interesting. I think the takeaway probably is just that obviously it matters what kinds of fonts you're using. The premise of the article that we read, and I'm not going to mention their name because we're sort of ripping it a little bit here, was that there are implications in terms of conversion. And here are some examples, citing those two surveys as examples of like, okay, well, obviously you would write your web page in, what was it, like Verdana or Times mm-hmm. New Roman or something like that, because people find those things easier to read. Well, that doesn't necessarily, easier to read doesn't necessarily mean more conversions, sure. right? And especially depending on the situation. And not to mention things with the study. I mean, who knows? Maybe if you started off reading 10 and then you saw 14, you were like, oh, that's massive, right? You know, right? I preferred the 10. That was easy to read. So there's so many things to take into consideration. I think the main thing there, though, is something that you touched on, which was that I'm not necessarily taking a, a reading test when I'm looking at your website, right? Mm-hmm. I'm scanning things quickly. Big, nice spacing, big line heights make things a lot easier to scan and read because re- people aren't reading your websites intellectually right. <laughs> for comprehension mm-hmm. and retention. They're just looking for them to scan and see that your webpage is about what they think it is to move on to your process. Yeah, I mean, my thoughts about typography is one, you know, let's make sure things are readable. So looking at space, I think something that a lot of people forget about is line height and spacing between mm-hmm. your lines. Sometimes text can appear very crunched. And it's hard to read, especially if it's quite a bit of text to get lost in that. But I think that there is something to be said for creating personality with typography, you know, and creating pages that pop a little bit more and making it eye-catching. With the advent of templates and a lot of platforms on the web, a lot of sites start looking very similar. And I think that sometimes typography might not necessarily mean more leads or more orders, but if it makes me stop, absorb the information more, and creates a personality, then I think that's, a, that's also kind of worth something as well. It doesn't necessarily always have to be about, does this put more dollars in the bank? I think there's something to be said from a branding standpoint as well. All right, so moving right along, typography. If you want to know anything about it, Rob is obviously your man to talk to because he's an expert. <laughs> I've already forgotten everything, so don't. <laughs> but let's move right along to PBC Learnings from 2013. So one to kind of cover some of the areas that we saw some, at least with our partners, pretty strong growth this year and some things to maybe consider for your own campaigns. Over the course of the year, we saw a lot of changes and rollouts uh, as it relates to remarketing and just Google continuing to get stronger with this in particular. And what do we mean by retargeting is people that click on our paid advertisements and continuing to follow up with those people after they leave our site in that session. So not only has Google and has for a while allowed us the opportunity to do that, but now we have the ability to customize those lists based on what people do in our sessions. So I could actually technically target people differently that come in from different campaigns and put them into different remarketing lists. So for people that might click on very general terms like home, 
theater systems, I might target those people differently than people that are clicking in to look at Yamaha receivers. And now with some of the changes to remarketing, I can actually put those people in different buckets. So when they go on other sites that are serving Google ads or even searching Google later on, I can serve them the most relevant ads to the customer behavior that they've expressed to me. And Mm -hmm. it's allowed me to get a lot more powerful with our marketing efforts. Along those lines, what Google has introduced, and in full disclosure, I haven't tested this yet, but they've rolled out a feature of similar audiences. So what they've tried to do with this is, based on the people that you've identified to Google as, these are people that came on from our paid search campaigns and did not convert our remarketing list, Find me people that are similar to this. And this is where the similar audience feature comes into play. So what Google will do is look at everyone that's in this list and they'll try to find some affinities there, whether that is demographic data, whether that is some of the data that they have about affluency in certain areas and things like that. And they'll try to go and find you people that are just like those people. I'm very skeptical with how accurate this is, but it is a new feature that they've rolled out. And it has to be said that Google has and is continuing to conquer some very complex problems and has a ton of data. So do I think that that's outside their wheelhouse of possibility? Absolutely not. And maybe I'm just an old curmudgeon and don't give them enough credit where it's due in a feature like that. But it does seem to be a tough task to do in finding similar audiences, particularly when you work for maybe a small business and you have a very small sample set. Maybe if you're someone like Best Buy, then that becomes a little bit easier. But that is a new feature that's rolled out that someone might want to play around with. It's funny that you're actually mentioning this because I was actually looking in a couple of clients' AdWords accounts today and looking at the size of that list and how big it is compared to what our actual remarketing lists are. And it was it was very tempting to test that out today. So right. I think, I mean, yeah, I think after you talking about it, I think we're going to try it out on a couple of different client accounts this week. But because they don't tell you much about how they're finding out mm-hmm. who these similar people are, I'm very hesitant to speak too much to it because I think that, for example, if they're looking at things that are similar among different types of people. So like you were talking about how much money they make and where they're from and that kind of stuff. That could work really great for certain types of niches. It could be terrible Mm -hmm. for a lot of other different types of niches. So if the other example you brought up, a local campaign, if Google is smart enough to realize that all of these people are from this certain locality, that that is the thing that they should be looking at as the similar factor then I think that that can work really well. If they're not smart enough to realize that that is the really similar thing, then that's when I think you can maybe run into trouble. But I think it's certainly worth a test for most people. I mean, uh, that remarketing stuff, you don't have to spend a ton of money to just test it out and see if it's going to work for your campaigns. Right. And with the advent of some other features that have come into Google Analytics, you can see those efforts as well with your multi-attribution funnels and see do these remarketing channels really work well to kind of capture those leads that I've initially fostered with a an ad, and now that I can retarget these people, it's worth my time in doing so. Yeah, I don't know how much success you've had with remarketing campaigns. It's always been successful uh, wherever I've used it. Um, Mm -hmm. So if, you know, those listeners out there who are not familiar with it or have sort of thought about it and not spent much time on it, it's definitely something that needs to be a part of every AdWords campaign you're running. Even if you're not running AdWords, just set it up and use it to capture people who have been to your website in the past. That's an easy integration. Sure. And even though I outlined some pretty complex examples about people 
people going to certain parts of our site or different ad groups and putting them in different lists. You don't have to get that complex with mm-hmm. it. Um, and like I think both of us said, we've always had really good success with it. So you might have to get a little bit more involved in how you pull your data to be able to look at the full picture because now you might move some of your conversions from your main campaigns onto remarketing and you need to understand the interplay between those two so you don't start turning off campaigns that maybe don't have as many conversions directly attributed to them and now those have moved to remarketing but they're both very important to one another so again you have to get a good grasp on your data and understand again the interplay between all your campaigns but it is really powerful okay so wrapping things up on the ppc side of things Another area that we've seen people use PPC increasingly in 2013 is to do some keyword research. So as Google has taken away some of this keyword, really all the keyword data from organic search, a lot of people have been turning to PPC to do research on what key terms they should actually be optimizing for that are converting well for their site. Because a lot of that information has been taken away from them, they are now turning to PPC as maybe not their main driver of traffic, but now as kind of a research tool to augment their SEO efforts because they can see from a PPC standpoint, these type of keyword themes are working well. So as we're plotting out our SEO strategies for the next couple of months, Let's target these types of areas because we're seeing good progress made on the PPC side of things. Now, PPC and organic traffic can act differently, but a lot of people are using it now for more research purposes for that very reason. So some things to keep in mind for 2014 with your PPC campaigns. Again, I can't stress enough remarketing works really well as long as you have a good handle on it. But there are some other benefits to PPC that you should definitely explore in the upcoming year. But you got to be not scared of spending some money. So do it. Moving right along, social signals. And we were just talking about SEO. That's yeah. crazy. We're, we're continuing this Google train. I guess this is Google Corner in the middle of the show okay. this week. Uh, Matt Cutts has been talking recently about social signals, meaning things like do tweets about my website, do plus ones on my website, all of these types of things. Do those have an influence on how my site ranks inside of Google. And there's been speculation for, you know, as long as social networks have been around, but I think it's heated up a lot, especially since Google has, you know, really started to push Google Plus. Mm -hmm. Um, Plus ones are out there and popular, and a lot of people are using it. Google Plus is starting to get actually pretty popular. It seems like most people I know are now on it. Um, It's being used actively by a lot of people now. So I think their YouTube integration really helped push that forward. You you have to have a Google Plus account to comment and things like that. Right. So with all of these things, people have been speculating and trying to run tests, air quotes, uh, to see if things like plus ones, uh, do those matter? Do those increase the rankings on a specific page or my website or anything like that? So I think we've covered maybe on a couple different episodes those tests and share the results of what people have found. And it seems like, you know, one group will test something and go, yes, it does matter. Another group will test the same thing in a different sort of circumstance and go, no, we can't find any correlation here. So it doesn't seem to matter. So Matt Cutts basically came out and said, and of course you have to take this sort of with a grain of salt. I mean, he speaks on behalf of Google, so we can't trust it completely. But he had a video that basically explained the difficulty, the difficulty in trying to find out who the important people are on social networks, how much weight you give their plus ones, their tweets, or whatever it is, and how you integrate that into the search rankings is just too difficult right now. 
That was basically the gist of his video. He was talking about how complex it is to try to find out who influencers are, exactly what they're talking about when they mention a URL. So for example, I could very easily tweet a URL while I'm complaining about it. In Google's eyes, that shouldn't count as a vote for that Mm -hmm. website, right? That's because it's negative. So Google not only has to start counting these sorts of things, they have to understand, well, that's actually a negative like the semantics behind right, it. Right, exactly. They have to understand the semantics behind all those tweets. And especially when you consider things like most people who probably tweet things are actually probably bitching about them anyway. <laughs> right. Um, you really have to take those things into consideration. So that was basically the, the takeaway from his video was it's too difficult right now, doesn't have an influence. I think that that goes with a lot of the old school SEO's sort of mm-hmm. gut feeling is that it's it's good thing to be doing right now for other reasons. But it's not something that's going to take your site up the search engine ranking result pages. Yeah, the only area or industry I could see that not being necessarily true would just be like news and breaking stories where Google or Bing or whoever is identifying a high velocity subject. Now, like recently, Philip Seymour Hoffman died. In instances like that, I could see them relaxing those types of checks because they are noticing a ton of queries for this and a lot of social traffic. And the social traffic in that instance might be another check for moving this content Mm -hmm. up the page because we're not necessarily worried about semantic. It's just the straight velocity that we can detect for this story or this piece of content means that it should be at the top. That is actually one of the other things that he mentioned. And for, uh, you know, a lot of these hesitations that he was mentioning about a lot of these social networks don't really apply with Google Plus. Obviously, they have all of that data. So mm-hmm. n- some of this stuff doesn't matter. But for example, on, you know, a Twitter page or a Facebook page, it's difficult to understand when things were posted, when things were removed whose people friends are, because that's, all that stuff changes all of the time. And for Google, who only hits pages periodically and gets snapshots of things, it's hard to get things like, you know, you were just maybe mentioning is that, okay, there's a lot of people mentioning this now. They have a hard time because they're only getting snapshots here and there of everybody's stuff. They don't have, Twitter does offer this, for example, but they don't have access to the direct Twitter stream where they're able to get some of that information directly. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing you mentioned is we don't have AP, direct API access to all of these right. uh, social networks. It's it's not as easy as you would think it would be to get that kind of information. So mm-hmm. don't worry about social networks in terms of your SEO ranking. Just you should post to Facebook. <laughs> you should worry about it just for you know other reasons: traffic, natural word of mouth, all that kind of stuff for your websites. It's an important right, thing. But it SEO, it's still murky, and one would venture to say not necessarily a strong SEO benefit out there. But yeah. For other purposes, it's definitely worth the effort. So keeping things in the social vein, there was interesting research that was published late last month by the McKinsey Research Group that explored, and this was over multiple years, how email and social pitted against one another. How do these channels fare against one another in gaining new customers? But also, what's the percent changed over the years? So as we look through the years 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, how are these channels performing at getting me new customers? And what is also the mix-up? Are we starting to trend more positively with social? Are those starting to convert better? Are they becoming a greater swath of our a customer base that we need to keep in mind. And what was interesting with the study is I think the numbers were a bit inflated, to be frank, but that's the industry that we work in. If you didn't do something at more than, you know, 40% get out of here, <laughs> don't even want to talk to you. 
So what they found over the years is many more times over social has email gotten significantly better at converting new customers. Mm -hmm. And so what they didn't necessarily look at is sheer volume, but what they looked at and plotted in their charts and the data that they showed is specifically over the last three years, the email conversion rate of getting people as new customers has far outpaced social, especially when they plot out on a graph. You can really see how much email has taken off at converting people. Now, that doesn't mean that there are necessarily as many conversations going on, but in the sense of actually converting people into customers or leads or how that's defined in their study, email has gotten better and significantly better than social. What I found that was kind of interesting is some of the conversations that was around this research, because it's pretty easy to jump the gun and say, well, based on those numbers and the research that they present, why are we even doing social? I mean, it seems like a waste of time. But what is interesting, and I think merits more conversation and talking through that is how email has become a more integral part of our lives and also used much more over the last couple of years, specifically with the mobile crowd. So what their research also kind of went into was not only is email converting at a much higher clip over the last couple of years, but specifically the mobile segment of people not only using email, but also converting from said emails is growing at a very rapid clip. And, you know, me thinking back, you know, it wasn't really that long ago that I can remember, you know, talking with people that aren't really in the industry And they, you know, say, I check my email maybe once a week or, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was like flabbergasted. I check this all the time. How how can you do that? But now that we have these pocket computers, we have these very powerful cell phones and email has become a much more used delivery mechanism. I'm wondering if that, yes, we do use social a lot and we use it for these conversations and it's very ingrained in our everyday lives. But Email has become a a great vehicle for customers to talk with their companies, but also hold conversations that are a bit different. And oftentimes it seems that the data shows more likely to have a focused conversation to actually leading you to a specific action. I think that's the the key thing there is, is what you just said, is that so many people of the last few years have gone from, I don't even have an email account to, I use it every day for everything. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think another thing that has happened along with that is the growth of marketing automation and much smarter email marketing just on the whole by everyone in the industry. I look at a couch on West Elm and they're sending me emails, you know, for the next week about that couch and now it's on sale and you need to come back and get it. And they're tracking when I click on it and go back to it. I mean, Email marketing has become so laser focused with a lot of the platforms that right, have become the level of sophistication. Yeah, that have become available over the last few years and, and become almost ubiquitous. I mean, if, if you if you haven't heard of Exact Target and HubSpot and some of these other ones, like you're not you're not somebody in this industry. Right, you're everyone not the game. everyone knows what those things are and uses them. And um, I think that that has really led to the huge growth we've seen in the performance of email marketing. Yeah, and I think people lose sight of, you know, there is a lot of, again, I don't want to downplay the large scale of social because it is massive, 
But I think what people kind of lose sight of is how much noise is in those channels, whereas email can be, like you said, not only a lot more sophisticated, but laser focused and driving you to an action, whereas social, yes, it's huge. We use it every day. There's tons of people on it, Um, but it's also just very distracting, Mm -hmm. and maybe you're just not really turned to a decision much like you are in email. We're going to tweet out the link because I think... a lot of research to go through more that we can spend time on this episode, but it's worth your time understanding. Again, we as marketers, time is limited. We need to know where we need to invest our time, where is the greatest return on that. And I think this study can kind of shed some light on where you might need to rethink about email as being such a strong performer. And like what Rob was saying, maybe it's time to step up your game on some of your automation, maybe looking at some of the automatic campaigns I can build, the analytics that I can look at, and the systems that I could implement to drive sales and leads farther. That's going to do it for us on episode number 47. Give us a call, 904-270-9603. Have a topic for us. Maybe you're struggling with something, the boss is yelling at you, you don't really know where to turn. Give us a call, we'd love to cover it on an episode. Also, if you had a great time here, leave us a rating on iTunes, be greatly appreciated. We had an awesome time with you this week. Absolutely. We cannot wait for next week. Have a good rest of your day, and we'll talk to you next week.